Good morning, church. Today we'll be in Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. And it says, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves, that they were righteous, and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed to thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to the house, to his house, justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The word of God for the people of God. Well, good morning. Oh, you guys can do better than that. Come on, it's like summertime. Well, good morning. All right, three of you were like, I think I could do better. All right, my name is Marco. I serve as the, the preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse McAllen. In the event that you didn't hear LC, we're going to find ourselves in the New Testament in Luke chapter 18. We're looking at verses 9 through 14. So while you open or load your Bible, uh, let me give you a quick uh, couple of updates. The first one, or announcements, the first one is that if you are new, I'd love the opportunity to, to meet you or to take you out uh, or to even pray for you. Uh, we have these connect cards on the chairs. Fill one out and leave it in the connect desk and or just come straight up to me after service. I'd love to hang. In addition to that, we have Bibles available to you. We love God's Word. We love to preach from God's Word. Therefore, we love to gift God's Word. So if you do not have a Bible, please take one with you. That is our gift from us to you. Um, other than that, that's all I have for you this morning. Did anyone grow up watching Mr. Rogers? Right. Mr. Rogers was an epic influence in my life. Uh, it was through his TV program where he helped me to learn English and to better understand the kids around me at school. I remember watching his farewell speech in 2003 and bawling like a baby. And I could still find his little farewell speech on YouTube to this day. And if I watch it, I could feel the tears in my eyes. It was a sad time because I knew that Mr. Rogers would be retiring. It was even more sad learning that he would pass away not too long thereafter. Mr. Rogers had several pithy expressions that he would often say. One of them, and you may be familiar with it, one of them was, I like you just the way you are. There's a lot of truth behind that statement, especially for Christians. On one hand, this statement helps us to remember that you and I are created in God's image. It should lead us to remember that as a result, everyone is created in God's image. And as a bigger result, uh, because we are all created in God's image, everyone has worth, dignity, and value. An expression like this from Mr. Rogers to the Christian helps us to interact, 
to love and to serve those around us. On the other hand, statements like this can sometimes be weaponized, suggesting that there's absolutely nothing wrong with us, that we do not have to change. You would even hear, you might even hear other pithy expressions like, you do you. When this happens, as it often does, we move from self-respect and honoring one another to self-righteousness. In a sense, Mr. Rogers was right about the way we are, especially when it comes to our personality, our quirks, some of our traits. Those are things that we probably shouldn't change. That's how we are. But outside of that, we are not fine the way we are. You are not fine the way you are. I am not fine the way that I am. Why? Well, because we have not yet become the people God is calling us to be. We need to be changed. We need to be sanctified. We need to be transformed. In today's parable, we're going to see a number of things taught by Jesus. And one of the things that I'd like us to focus on is the danger of self-righteousness. In a time where selfism or self-righteousness is exalted, made much of, thought highly of, I want us to see, and here's your main idea, I want us to see that our self-righteousness can only condemn us while Christ's righteousness saves us. I'll say that one more time. Our self-righteousness, our very best can only condemn us while Christ's righteousness saves us. So let me pray, and then we'll dig into this parable. Join me in prayer. Father, we praise you for another day where we receive mercy. Another morning where you lavish us with your grace. Today, today we need you. Would you by your Spirit, humble us and ready us to receive the grace of your Word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, this parable, the the Pharisee and the tax collector, this parable is fairly well known for many. Here, Jesus is addressing people who have an inflated sense of self, those who are self-righteous. And it's important for us to park on verse 9 because it sets up the entire parable. And so before we look closer at verse 9, let me give you the breakdown of our text. We're going to look at three sections today. We're going to be looking at the danger of self-righteousness, the grace of brokenness, and finally, the beauty of acceptance. And you'll see some of those notes up on the screen. Well, let us begin our time with the danger of self-righteousness by examining what it means to be self-righteous because that's who Jesus is addressing in this parable. Let's look at verse 9. He, told, uh, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. 
we see three brief descriptions of the self-righteous. First, they trust in themselves, meaning that they are not the problem, other people are. Second, they consider themselves to be righteous, meaning that they are the standard. They are the moral standard. They are the spiritual standard. They are the, capital T, standard. And third, they treat others with contempt, meaning they consider themselves to be better than those around them. Here at Storehouse McAllen, one of our pithy expressions is what you believe shapes how you live. And this is true whether you know Jesus or you do not know Jesus. And in this text, in verse 9 in particular, we see this play out. We see these individuals who believe or trust in themselves. They believe themselves to be righteous. And that comes out in the way in which they live by treating others with contempt, belittling them, despising them, rejecting them, ultimately thinking that they are better. Therefore, as we dive into this parable, right, that's verse 9 sets it up. That's not the parable itself, right? Verse 9 sets it up. Jesus brings forward two characters, right? This is in verse 10. Two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Okay? Now, opening up that parable like that in Jesus' day would have caused a big drama. See, to us, the use of a Pharisee and a tax collector doesn't really spark emotional controversy, but in Jesus' day, it did. You see, a Pharisee was known as a religious leader in the days of Jesus. These individuals were revered. They were known for being uh, devout and, and religious and, and disciplined. They were respected. They were considered to be morally upright. They were, known for their, uh, they were known for their purity, but they were also known for their hypocrisy. Tax collectors, on the other hand, were despised, they were rejected, they were seen as thieves among their own people. Tax collectors were Jews who worked for the Roman government and would do as the title suggests, they would collect taxes. Only they would be demanding, in other words, they would not only impose the tax that was set, they would ask for more and they would keep whatever, they, whatever additional taxes they asked for. They were known for being ungodly, dishonest. One commentator even goes on to say that, that tax collectors were so hated, feared, despised that if you were on the street walking and then you saw a tax collector walking towards you, people would go the extra mile and walk to the other side of the street just to avoid being around them. These two examples are meant to be extreme. That's part of the point. In our time, this example could be something like, dare I say, a televangelist and a cartel member, a pastor and a prostitute, a morally upright citizen and a sex offender. It's meant to be two extremes. So let's get into the parable. This is verse 11. The Pharisee, standing by himself, 
prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Here's what I find so interesting about the Pharisee. So he goes into the temple. He's going to go pray. And as he does so, he unloads a resume. Now, here's the thing about that resume. He's probably telling the truth. Maybe he isn't like other men. Maybe he hasn't committed extortion or adultery. Maybe he does fast twice a week. Like the law only required them to fast twice a year. Homie's doing it like Tuesdays and Thursdays. Like he's really disciplined. Maybe he's telling the truth. But what Jesus wants us to see through the illustration of the Pharisee, he wants us to see that the self-righteous consider themselves to be better than other people based on at least three characteristics. See, the self-righteous, and we're looking at the Pharisee in this parable, the self-righteous are subjective, or they can be subjective. That is, from their perspective, preferences and their personal disciplines are the mark of commitment and devotion. You've met individuals like that, where they have preferences, and if you don't hold to those preferences, you're in the wrong. In other words, it may not be sinful, it's just different, but they would hold it to a standard that is untrue. Secondly, self-righteous individuals can be, and typically are, selective. Actually, let me go back to the first with subjective. Look at the first thing the Pharisee says. God, I thank you, I'm not like other men. So there's that comparison. There's that subjective comparison. Then he is selective. In other words, those who are self-righteous tend to pick certain sins and corruptions in other people's lives to make themselves look better. I may struggle with something. You may struggle with something different. The, the thing that we have in common is that we both struggle with sin. A self-righteous individual would look at my sin and continue to beat on that. See, I don't struggle with that. Could you imagine how he struggles with X, Y, and Z? Did you know this is what he does or doesn't do? I don't do any of those things. Like, I get it, he struggles, but man, let me tell you why I don't struggle with this. There's never actually any kind of confession. There's never acknowledgement of their own sin, but they are selective about other people's sin. Finally, those who are self-righteous are superficial. In other words, there is no depth to their character, but there is quite a bit of comparison. Because they're looking to the left and to the right. Look at how they struggle with X, Y, and Z. Look at how I am not like him or her. And that's exactly what the Pharisee is doing. I thank you that I'm not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, right? So he picks certain things and says, man, I don't struggle with that like other people do. He's superficial, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. There's no depth. There's no confession. There's no acknowledgement of sin. He's just busting out his resume and saying, look how awesome I am, God. The danger 
of self-righteousness is twofold. On one hand, the self-righteous are incapable of seeing their own sin because their identity is rooted in comparison. Say that one more time. The self-righteous are incapable of seeing their own sin because their identity is rooted in comparison. J.C. Ryle, he's a a former bishop from Liverpool who has long since been dead, writes this. In all our self-examination, let us not try ourselves by comparison with the standard of men. Let us look at nothing but the requirements of God. When you look at the prayer of the Pharisee, not once does he petition something before God, acknowledge his sin before God. Not once does he confess his sin or confess his need. Instead, he is the golden standard, and he tells God about it. Is this you? Are you self-righteous? You might say, well, I'm not like the Pharisee. Well, I'm going to ask you a series of questions. I'm not going to elaborate on them. I'm just going to hit them real quick. And if you're taking notes, I'm probably going to go too fast for you, so you can go back and listen to this sermon. Are you argumentative? Do you resent being asked to serve? Perhaps in the context of the local church, at home, work. Do you become defensive when you are criticized or corrected? Are you more concerned about your problems and burdens than other people's problems and burdens? Do you get hurt if your accomplishments or acts of service are not recognized or rewarded? Do you react to rules? In other words, you have a hard time being told what to do. When was the last time you said these words to a family member, a friend, a co-worker? I was wrong. Would you please forgive me? If it's been more than a month, that's a, that's a problem. Are you sitting here thinking that many of these questions apply to someone else? You laugh because it's true. This is what Jesus says to the Pharisees in, in Luke 16. You are those who justify yourselves before men. But God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. God hates self-righteousness. It's not just something that he's displeased with. It's an abomination. He loathes it. The second danger of self-righteousness is that the self-righteous often are not submitted to God's will. Once more, look at the Pharisee. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Or this tax collector, look at what I do, the fasting and the tithing. 
the tax collector can't look at his sin, therefore doesn't necessarily look at God rightly, right? And as a result, because of his heart's distortion, doesn't and cannot even love his neighbor. There's no confession. There's no acknowledgement. There's no grace in his prayer. Therefore, the self-righteous, if they cannot even consider themselves before God, they cannot in turn love their neighbors. What you believe shapes how you live. The self-righteous can be so blind to their sin that rather than loving others, they condemn others. And rather than walking in humility, they exalt themselves highly. Once more, J.C. Ryle says or writes, never are men's hearts in such a hopeless condition as when they are not sensible of their own sins. See, when it comes to the self-righteous, because they are the standard, because they are the example, because they are the principle, they are sovereign over themselves. Now, here's the kicker. None of us are immune to self-righteousness. And oftentimes, in the church, when we think about self-righteousness, we can or we tend to think about it in two ways. We tend to think about it in light of the way the world lives and behaves and acts, or we tend to think about self-righteousness within the context of the Pharisee. And we'll say, well, we're not like the Pharisee. But when you consider the bubble that is uh, the church culture, you and I are not immune to self-righteousness. I'll choose one area. Many times, we can pursue, walk, live in self-righteousness doctrinally. That is, when we are theologically arrogant. Depending on whatever theological camp you stand on, you probably stand there because you believe it is right. You could be wrong, but me saying that would be like, no, how dare you, right? Like, no, you could be. We could be. But in addition to that, here's, a, here's one, right? If you can't read books from other theological camps just because you don't like them, you're self-righteous. You're self-righteous. And it's not even when it comes to you being a nerd. It could also be in the context of the way in which you interact with other people. That you can be selective because certain individuals don't know their Bibles as well as you do. They haven't read the blogs that you have read, right? They don't follow the stupid accounts on social media that you follow. And therefore, you arrogantly think highly of yourself theologically and philosophically, when in reality, you're just self-righteous but you hide behind really good $5 words that you literally learned the day before. Paul, to the Galatians, he says this, Now the works of the flesh are evident. This is what's really interesting. When you see that phrase, the flesh, it's, it's easy to think, oh, these are things that, we're gonna, that are tangible, that we can see. And so he goes on to say, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery. 
Those are things we can see. Those are things that we can touch. Those are things that are evident because they're on social media. They're in your life or you've seen it in other people's lives. But Paul doesn't stop there. He keeps it going. He goes on to say enmity. That's, that's when there's tension between people. Strife, jealousy, fits of anger rivalries, dissensions, that is when you disagree with people and you walk away from them, divisions, when you literally split groups or churches, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Here's what Paul is saying. He is equating, not in terms of consequence, as much as you and I would like to do this, right? But he is equating fits of anger to orgies. That's on that same spectrum. The consequence might be different, but that's not what we're talking about. You and I can be self-righteous when we categorize and compartmentalize all of those things. The minute you say, well, at least I don't struggle with X, we've walked into self-righteousness. The self-righteous are too busy assessing the faults and inconsistencies of others while failing to recognize their own spiritual corruption. But there's some good news. And that takes us to verse 13. This is the second portion of our time. This is the grace of brokenness. This is where we examine the heart and prayer of the tax collector. So let's go to verse 13. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. His prayer is seven words. Seven words. He goes into the temple just like the Pharisee does, right? And the Pharisee exalts himself. The tax collector goes into the corner, into the shadows, is ashamed and he comes broken before God. Seven words, and he comes broken before God. Why? Because unlike the Pharisee, the tax collector knows who he is. He says it at the end of his prayer, a sinner. He knows who he is. He knows that others know who he is. In his prayer, he can't even look at God, only his sin. And what seems to be a twist, he asks for what he does not deserve, and that is mercy. In other words, asking for mercy, what the tax collector is doing is, what he's doing is, is he's saying, I can't do this. My merits, my work, my best only condemns me. Therefore, be merciful to me. He is banking on the righteousness of another in order to receive mercy. That's it. In seven words, he, that's what he unpacks. He is banking on the righteousness of another, not his own. 
And so what we see in these seven words, we see this, this prayer of, of contrition. Number one, like In other words, what he does is he makes it personal. The, the Pharisee says, God, let me tell you why I'm awesome, and let me tell you why I'm better than others. And doesn't necessarily look to God, whereas the tax collector, it's just him and God as he comes before him. In addition to that, the tax collector owns his heart. He owns his sin. He, he doesn't make excuses for it. He doesn't add, man, the reason I'm this way is because of him and her, and if only this had changed, then I wouldn't be this way. He owns his entire heart. We see the tax collector pursue humility as he confesses his sin. King David in, in Psalm 51 says it this way, For you, he's praying to God, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. So in that moment, what David is saying is, man, I'm not, there's nothing that I can do that's going to please you other than a broken heart and a humbled spirit. And that's how the tax collector approaches God. In addition to that, you see the tax collector grieve his sin. He goes on to say, also verse 13, standing far off, he would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast. That means he was like, like punching his chest. And that was, that's kind of a big deal. That little picture is, is a big deal because men in this day were supposed to have it all together and you wouldn't do this publicly. And instead, homeboys going to a temple, people can see he is so grieved by his sin. It is similar to what the Apostle Paul tells the Corinthian church. He says, hey, I don't like that you were grieved, but I was, I'm actually really thankful that, you, that you, your grief led you to repent. And that's what we are saying, seeing with the tax collector. He is grieved by his sin, and in his grief, it leads him to repentance. His grief doesn't lead him to shame. His grief leads him to come before God. Why? Because he's been made aware of his condition. Once more, J.C. Ryle says, the cure for self-righteousness is self-knowledge. That is, when we become aware of our sin, when God illuminates our heart and eyes to our sin, then we can properly grieve and approach God rather than continue to walk in shame. I was reading this one book. It's a, it's a collection of, of Mexican-American literature and, uh, and, and authors and poets. <laughs> and one of the authors in this particular story goes on to write about her um, faith experience. And one of the things she wrote about, or one of the things she says in this short story was, I really wanted uh, faith to be my way. That phrase really stood out because when you look at the tax collector, there's absolute surrender. It's not faith his way. He surrenders himself before God. He surrenders himself to the will of God. 
I think sometimes, as Christians, that is more of our mantra. I want faith to be my way. And when we believe that, say that, walk that, theologically, philosophically, right? What you believe shapes how you live. It preaches a sermon. And it is one of self-righteousness. It is a broken spirit and a humbled heart that God will not despise. And finally, we come to verse 14. This is where we come to the beauty of acceptance. See, the difference between these two individuals isn't that one was better than the other, but that one was repentant. And as a result of their repentance, he didn't stay the way he was. Instead, he was transformed. And the key word to this is the word justified in verse 14. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. The one who humbles himself will be exalted. To be justified means to stand before someone in acceptance. And the doctrine of justification teaches that we stand before God right and accepted on the basis of faith alone, not our merit, not our best, not our righteousness, but faith in Christ alone. As a result, this doctrine also teaches us that the reason we can stand accepted before God is because at the cross of Christ, an exchange happened where Jesus bore all of our sin, uh, past, present, and future, and in exchange gives us His righteousness. Did you catch that? At the cross, Jesus bore our sin and then exchanges our sin for His righteousness. Therefore, the righteousness that we walk in is not one of our own, but the righteousness of another who bore our penalty in our place for our sin. As a result, like the tax collector, we walk away changed, redeemed, and transformed forever. And that's the big controversy to the story. Go back to verse 14. He writes, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. Why would he say that? He could have just ended saying, I tell you, this man was justified. He adds that little phrase, he went down to his house justified because what he is saying is he left the temple a changed man. He left transformed. The other one did not. The one who had it all together, the morally upright, the religious, the devout, he did not leave justified. It was the one who was broken. He did not leave the same. Here's the irony. What we impart from the Pharisee is comparison. What we impart from the tax collector is character and humility. Our righteousness cannot save us. It can only condemn us. Our righteousness cannot change us. It only enslaves us. Our righteousness cannot and does not humble us. It only inflates us. But the righteousness of Christ, 
liberates us from condemnation, from bondage and self-righteousness. As a result, we are saved. We are sanctified. We are sustained on the merit of Jesus' righteousness for us. The Apostle Paul says it this way, for our sake he made him, that is Jesus, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus is the only means by which we are justified. And so as we close, Mr. Rogers had it right for the most part when it comes to our personality, our quirks. But when we examine the depths of our heart, we see that we fall short and that our very own righteousness, our very own best, as Isaiah puts it, is filthy. But when we come before God broken, humbled, and contrite, whether our sins are many, whether our sins are great, whether our prayers seem weak or unconnected or poor, let us remember the tax collector. The same Jesus who provided this parable to teach and convict us on self-righteousness is the same Jesus who sits at the right hand of the Father, ready to receive sinners, ready to redeem them. So Christian, where are you self-righteous? See, my concern, my concern is that you will listen to a sermon like this, and you'll reflect, and while I appreciate reflection, that's all that you will do. Or you'll listen to a sermon like this, reflect, and you might even confess. In other words, confession is, to a degree, nothing more than agreeing. You can say, oh yeah, I do struggle with self-righteousness. That's good, that's good. What's for lunch? My concern is that that's all that will be said. Let me, as, as your brother as your pastor, as your friend, as one who fails greatly in this area, let me invite you to repent before the Lord. Standing and turning in grace, confess your heart before the Lord this morning. Address a brother or sister that you need to address that you keep avoiding. Walk in obedience as a result of humility. Leave here renewed. And if you're not a Christian, thank you for being here. I really do appreciate it. This sermon isn't so much about doing good, as I'm sure you do much good for yourself, your friends, your family, your community. However, apart from God, the Bible teaches that we cannot do any kind of spiritual good and as a result, even our best motivations, even your best motivations, are inherently corrupt. In Jesus, I can promise you this. I can tell you two things, right? It's not that you're going to get money or, or, or uh, whatever else other people preach. But here's what I can promise you. That upon repenting and trusting in Jesus, you will receive a new heart. In addition to that, you will receive the Spirit of God.
And it's not that you're immune, but through the Holy Spirit, you can then push darkness back. Today, come before Jesus. Church, our self-righteousness, our best, our merits, our very good works, our self-righteousness can only condemn us while Christ's righteousness saves us. Let's pray. Father, it is a broken spirit and a humbled heart that you will not despise. Today, may we remember, may we remember the tax collector. While we may be different culturally, our hearts relate internally. While we may not sell ourselves out to one another, we do sell you out regularly. And so, Father, may we confess that we are like the Pharisee in many ways. Sometimes our hearts and lives plunge into the world of comparison in different contexts. In short, we are, we are prone to wander from your grace. And so, Lord, we ask you to help us. We often hide behind our self-righteousness as a way to protect and deflect. Our sin makes us forget you. Let the weeds that grow in our soul be cut at their roots. May the character of our life be the mark of humility and renewal. Holy Spirit, would you grant us the grace to abide in Jesus today? May we draw near to you today, and as we enter into a new week, Father, may the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart be acceptable in your sight. Amen.